Oh, Father, how we thank you that as we approach you through Jesus Christ, we come to a throne of grace. And there we find not rebukes, not condemnation, but we find mercy, we find grace to help in time of need. Father, we also thank you that your word is the word of grace. It is that which helps us in our time of need as well. So, Father, as we look into your word, we are a sad church today. We're experiencing some level of grief and mourning. And so we pray that your word would point us to Christ. Oh, how we need you, Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that we might be encouraged as we meditate upon you this day. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. It has been about seven weeks since my father-in-law died, and my wife and I and our children were still grieving. Even though Joyce's dad was 93 years of age, and that is amazing, we have experienced great sorrow over his departure from this world. But I'm thankful to say that we have been so helped and have found ongoing comfort through the gospel. The gospel that says and assures us that he, as a child of God, as a believer in Christ, is absent from his body, but he is present with the Lord. Many of you, and we're very thankful for many of you and others that we know who have expressed your condolences to us in wonderful ways, thoughtful ways. We have appreciated so many of the cards that we've received. But I must say, there's another meaningful way in which many of you have expressed sympathy to us that has been wonderfully helpful, and that is to assure us that you're praying for us. It is difficult to put into words how we benefit from knowing that others are soliciting help from our Heavenly Father. A Heavenly Father who has resources that cannot be measured and cannot be exhausted. Prayer through Jesus Christ puts us in touch with God. And God is able to accomplish infinitely more than what we would ever dare to ask or even hope. So the thought of praying is such an incredible, wonderful expression of love. Most of you know, if you're visiting today, you can sense that we are having a difficult time today. If you're a part of our church family, you know We've been going through a difficult time. We have experienced painful losses recently. Some of those losses are due to people who have moved away and others who have chosen to walk away. And I've been seeking God, I've been asking God for wisdom to know and how to prepare some messages that might be appropriate for our church as we face these changes together. And so I've been drawn to a very unique, one-of-a-kind passage in John's Gospel. So if you'll find your way there to John chapter 17, 
page 1286 in your pew Bible. would love for you to have that open in front of you, either your own Bible or a pew Bible or your tablet or whatever you're using. Pew Bibles 1286, John 17. Here in this passage, we find Jesus praying for his church. Let me just give some background context to sort of set it up as to where we come to this section here. In John's Gospel, chapters 13 through 16, John records a lengthy, very lengthy section of Jesus' teaching. And all this teaching takes place on the last night before he was put to death on the cross. And Jesus knew that he and his disciples were about to endure a time of intense difficulty, intense tribulation and affliction. And so Jesus provides wise, insightful instruction for his followers, and ultimately for us, to understand and to gain a new perspective on what is going to be a real nightmare. He assured them that the events that were about to take place were known by him in advance. So important that they know that. He also insisted that there were many reasons not to despair. Many reasons to not be troubled in heart. Chapter 14, verse 1. As the good shepherd, Jesus prepares his sheep for a time in which his flock is going to be scattered. And so he made a number of promises in this section. If you've never read it all together through, I would encourage you to do that. Chapters 13, ultimately through 17. Notice the number of promises that he makes. Notice the number of, of assurances. This is the section of Scripture you find numerous promises about the Holy Spirit that he says, I'm going to send you another comfort. I'm going to send you the one called alongside. And so you find numerous occasions in which he talks about the Holy Spirit here. And then that brings us now to chapter 17, where John concludes this lengthy portion of teaching that Jesus gave, extended section here with instruction, and he records in chapter 17 Jesus' prayer for his disciples with 26 verses. It's a lengthy prayer. No other gospel records it, only John. And nowhere else in all of Scripture do we find a more intimate, a more insightful glimpse into the divine fellowship between God the Father and God the Son. And Jesus' prayer, I would suggest to you, can be broken down really into three different sections, if you will, three different focus points. Verses 1 to 5, Jesus prays for himself. Isn't that interesting? And secondly, in verses 6 to 19, Jesus prays for the 11 disciples, the 11 apostles who have followed him for the past three years. Judas is already off the scene. And then lastly, in verses 20 to 26, he prays for those who would believe on him through the testimony of the apostles. It is this last section I want us to look at this morning. And in looking at this section, I believe I can say without hesitation that this prayer, Jesus specifically prays for Christians like you and me. This is Jesus' prayer for our church. Now, what was Jesus' concern as he interceded for our church? I'd like you to read those verses together. Let's follow along with me in your own Bible, if you would. Verses 20 to 24. 
Jesus said, I do not ask, this is a prayer now, he's talking to the Father, I do not ask in behalf of these alone, referring to the 11 apostles, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, that the world may believe that you did send me. And the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, that the world may know that you did send me and did love them, even as you did love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, in order that they may behold my glory, which you have given me. For you did love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you did send me. And I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, that the love wherewith you did love me may be in them, and I in them. Really the focus I want to make this morning is 20, verses 20 to 24. Obviously, the theme that Jesus is concerned about here is he's concerned about his church being a united church. And so I want to answer three questions this morning in our reflection on this passage of Scripture and other Scriptures. Three questions about a united church. First of all, what kind of unity did Jesus pray for? When we're talking about unity, what is he referring to? What does that mean? Secondly, what is the nature of local church unity? And thirdly, what is the unity, why is unity so important to Jesus? Why is he even making this request? Why is it he's so concerned about? So the first question, what kind of unity did Jesus pray for? Well, I want to say what he didn't pray for first. I want to say it's clear that Jesus did not pray for an outward or what we could call an institutional unity. Jesus did not intercede for a large, centralized organization that would have control over all of the branches of local churches all over the world, as if he had some sort of uh, top-down hierarchical organization. And so that's what he's praying for. That's clearly not in his mind at all in this passage. The unity that Jesus sought from his Father was not an organizational unity. It is a spiritual unity. A spiritual unity. You say, where'd you get that? Well, look at verse 22. It's a unity that's similar to that which exists between the Father and the Son. He talks about that they may be one just as we are one. Beyond that, he even says in verse 20, do not ask in behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. It is a, it's a unity that's really connected to Jesus. And believing in him. It's a spiritual unity. Some people today assume that the unity Jesus sought to make was to unite as many people as possible who are religious or who affirm that there is a Jesus or who affirm the Trinity or who affirm certain uh, fundamental theological concepts. And so there have been many attempts over the years to try to gather as many people as possible who will affirm the, the smallest number of theological affirmations and be as broadly as possible. So you have in an international scene, you have the World Council of Churches that tries to gather as many together as possible. And more recently we've had, since 1994, 
an attempt among evangelicals to unite them with Catholics when they come out with a statement, Evangelicals and Catholics Together, 1994. An attempt to somehow try to suggest that both evangelicals and Catholics no longer need to evangelize among each other, that they would agree that they both affirm the same things and therefore they're really uh, united on many areas and fronts and therefore they would acknowledge that there's no need for evangelization. But obviously there are major differences among those two groups in their view of the Bible, the authority of the Bible, their view of the priesthood of believers, their view of the work of Christ on the cross, their view of how the gospel is defined differently, how, to, how, how one can know for sure they're justified. All these things are major issues in which there is not agreement from those things. So I don't think that's the unity that Jesus is talking about here. The unity that he desires for our church, for any church, is a unity that is built on the foundation of the revealed truth of God. It has to be a, a unity that's, that's boundered, has boundaries based on truth, revealed truth, and the unity of a shared spiritual life that comes through genuine faith in Jesus Christ. That's what he says. Verse 20, those who believe in me through their word. There's the, there's the revealed truth, the word of the apostles, which we understand to be the rest of the New Testament. So the true oneness that Jesus longs for in our church is that the members of this church share in the life of God through the power of the transforming gospel of grace. It is the gospel that brings us into communion with God through Jesus Christ. As sinners saved by grace, the only hope of experiencing union with God and other sinners is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. True spiritual unity will never be found apart from communion with Jesus. And I think if you back up to chapter 15, in, in that same section of this instructional night of Jesus preparing his disciples, chapter 15, he talks about being branches in the vine, connected to the vine. That is the idea of unity. We're all a part of this connection to Christ who is the true vine. You see, Jesus is our only hope. Jesus is our only healer. Jesus alone provides forgiveness. He alone loves us securely. Jesus alone is able and qualified to bring us to God. He alone is able to break down barriers of defensiveness and division that often become built up over offenses among people. He alone can impart unending hope, enduring hope, to people who live in a world where nothing seems to last very long. Jesus is the one who is our hope. And therefore, indeed, that's why the unity is a spiritual unity, a vital connection to Jesus Christ by faith. Secondly, I would say that the unity Jesus prayed for is not uniformity. Some people, when they hear the word unity, they think everything's the same and therefore it all fits together all cookie cutter, exactly identical, and therefore united. Well, Jesus never intended his church to be made up of people who are exactly alike in every way. As a matter of fact, if you look at the disciples who were there that, on that occasion, which he's speaking, he had a diversity of, of people there. Amazingly, uh, years ago when we preached through the book of Matthew, we noted the fact that Matthew, as a Jew, had partnered with the Romans as he had his own um, in a sense, license to collect taxes, so he's partnering with Rome. 
and he's acting on their behalf to collect all these taxes and to really take advantage and rip off people in this corrupt scheme. And so here's a person who aligned themselves with Rome, and then there's another extreme of Simon the Zealot. As a zealot, he was a person who aligned with people who were ready to take up arms and fight the Romans in order to free themselves from having the oppression of the Roman Empire in Judea. And so you have two opposite extremes, people ready to fight against the Romans, the people who are ready to embrace the Romans, and with their different backgrounds, they come together as followers of Jesus Christ around the gospel. And so we understand gospel unity includes rich, well-to-do um, people along with those who are poor. The gospel unity brings together well-educated people as well as uneducated people or poorly educated people. The gospel unity joins men and women, as we saw in Galatians. It is the gospel unity that brings together single people and married people. It is the gospel that brings together the blue-collar, the white-collar workers, the young and the elderly. These are all the people who are brought together through Jesus Christ in the gospel. When Jesus compares the unity that exists between him and his Father in verse 22, and he compares that to the unity he desires for his church. We know that that unity includes diversity. Unity includes diversity. Because the unity that exists among the members of the Godhead is a unity of equal persons. That is, they all equally are eternal, all equally um, in, equal in their power, their glory, their substance. And yet there is diversity among the persons of the Godhead. So that even in this text you see Jesus offering up his intercession to the Father, thanking him for the ones that the Father gave him, interceding for those that God, that God the Father gave him. It's the plan that God the Father launched, and Jesus is now submitting himself to fulfill that plan. And it is the Spirit of God that was sent by Jesus and the Father. So there's diversity there even among members of the Godhead. One God yet diverse. And so as a spiritual diverse unity is only possible through the gospel of Jesus Christ, that gospel must remain the center of our message and our ministry and our mission as a church. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ that is only means whereby any of us or all of us can become united spiritually to God through Jesus Christ. And with all of our differences, the gospel must continue to be our common denominator. And therefore, we especially are going to celebrate the fact that we equally together share, as he said at the beginning of John 17, the gift of eternal life is to know the God, the one true God, and the one whom he has sent, Jesus his Son. That is the gift we share in common. And therefore, the deeper our communion is to Jesus Christ as individuals, that is, the more we commune with Christ and go into the, the wonders of fellowshipping with him and enjoying his love, enjoying his grace, enjoying his, his favor, then our spiritual unity with each other will also be strengthened and encouraged and sustained. And Jesus, my friend, and this is my main point here, one of the main points of this whole passage, is to say that in the challenges of seeing that happen, be encouraged today. Jesus is praying that these things will happen. Jesus is praying for this church. He's praying for his church. 
He's praying for you. You say, sometimes I don't feel like I sense the love of Christ. I don't sense the, the presence of Christ. My friend, take a moment and think. You may not feel it, but the reality is that Jesus is praying for you. He is praying for that dynamic among this small band of believers. And one of the great encouraging words I've come across again in my week this week, Hebrews 7.25. Can you just hold your finger where you are in John, make your way over, or you can zip across with your little pad, and you can make your way over there and lickety-split. Hebrews 7.25, page 14.25, right at the bottom of the page, Pew Bible. If you don't have this verse underlined in your Bible, I encourage you, mark this verse, highlight it, underline it, go back to it, meditate on it further as weeks go by here. Times when you feel like, I don't sense this, the dynamic of our union with Christ and the union of the gospel around us, this seems to be not uh, thriving at times, and, and uh, we wonder about it. Well, be encouraged. Look at what Christ is doing about that. 725, Hebrews. He is able, this is Jesus Christ, the high priest, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. Since he, that is Jesus, always lives to make intercession for whom? For whom? For them. For the ones who come near to him through Christ. He's praying. He's interceding for you. Even now. He did pray on that occasion in the garden to the Father for his disciples and for those who would believe upon their word. And he's now praying in glory. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. Jesus is praying. The second question I want to answer this morning regards the nature of the local church unity. What is the nature of local church unity? As you read through this text, it becomes clear to me that Jesus expected this kind of unity in his church to be visible. It has to be seen somehow. It's not just theoretical. Jesus is longing for the world to see the unity displayed in life as people in the local churches like ours. Look at verse 21. He's praying that they may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, that the world may believe that you did send me. There's a sense in which he's concerned about the impact of what happens in the church is going to impact the world. As we read the testimony of the apostles, in the rest of the New Testament, we find that there are three terms I'd like to use as a means of trying to expand on this understanding of the nature of unity existing among the people of God. Three terms I'm going to use and look at um, under this heading of number two. So the first one is family members who maintain committed relationships. And the word I'm going to look at is the word brethren. I've written in your notes a number of passages passage of Scripture which the term brethren appears. There are many others. It's not exhaustive. But throughout the New Testament, Christians are referred to as brethren. Brothers, sisters, that kind of concept. Now, I've got a question for you as we pause for a second here. Let's think about our brothers and sisters in our biological families for a minute. Or our adopted family, whichever be the case. How many of you had any part in determining the process of maybe selecting your siblings. 
Did anybody have a, you know, yes or no? Uh-uh, I don't want that brother. Yeah, okay, I'm all right. Oh, yeah, nuh-uh, that one didn't make it. Did any of us have a vote on that? I can tell you I didn't. Now, I love my family. I love my brothers and my sister. I do, I dearly do. But when I was growing up, I was the third son. Think about it. I didn't get anything new. It was all handed down to me until I was 13 or 14. Uh, I was the one who I felt like always got in last. I was the one that got beaten up. I mean, you know, I can tell you my sorry story about how I perceive the world. Well, that's just my perspective. I was a wonderful child, I'm sure, and a very wonderful brother to everyone around me. Then my sister came along, and she got spoiled rotten because she's the little princess at the end, right? Everything was brand new for her. Okay, so I don't have any kind of jealousy or, you know, any kind of covetousness. Anyway, so we all work through these things in time, you know. Some of us are a little late in life working through that. The point is this. I had no say in who was added to my family as my siblings. And thank God I wasn't, didn't have any say in that. Thank God for each person in my family. I'm thankful I had a family. No one creates spiritual siblings on our own. It's God who begets children, spiritual children. Now, if you understand that principle, that it is God who brings those who are dead in Christ and makes them alive in Christ and makes them and adopts them into the family of God, they become your siblings based on what God, by his spirit, has done. Therefore, we don't have a choice as to who we're going to claim as a brother and sister in Christ. God adopts us by grace. He brings us into his family. And therefore, we are to fully embrace each other based on God's work of saving grace, which is then borne witness to by their profession of faith, by their baptism, and by taking the steps that would indicate indeed that they are those in whom we see the wonderful grace of God at work. But members of the family of God, that is, brethren, they enjoy this eternal bond that is stronger than death. It's forever family. And so brethren are really privileged to be bound together. When we traveled out west one time from West Virginia all the way to California and back in one car, station wagon, I wasn't so sure I wanted to be bonded with my brother, brothers and my sister. You see, God, though, is the one who adds brothers and sisters to his family. And as each believer then makes profession of faith in the waters of baptism, not that baptism saves them, but they make, make known that they are trusted in Christ, and trusting in him alone by faith, then they are then received into fellowship of a local church, which they identify themselves as, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. And those brothers and sisters, we don't create any kind of unity. That is the unity that God has already made. We're therefore now given the privilege and responsibility to say we are to sustain this unity that God has created. We're to in, indeed encourage it, promote it. So as brothers and sisters in Christ in this fellowship, as an expression of our devotion to each other, we enter into covenant with each other. It is a covenant that celebrates the gospel. It celebrates the fact that we as a people of God are called to forgive each other 
because of the gospel. We're called to help each other because of the gospel. We're to pray for each other, to bear each other's burdens. Not because we're required to, because we're trying to keep all these rules. It's because we do this because God, by his love, has made us part of his family, and now we share that love with other members of our forever family. And so we have Jesus, in a wonderful way, praying that we will express our love for him by maintaining loving bonds, bonds that show a commitment to our spiritual brothers and sisters in our church family. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, just real quickly here, you can keep your finger there in John, we'll come back, but uh, Galatians 4, sorry, Ephesians 4, I have to rethink here, I keep saying Galatians, I was there for so long, Ephesians chapter 4, first three verses. Paul writes, by the way, that's page 1392 in your pew Bible. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner, or live in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. That is, live out the implications of what it means to be a believer in Christ saved by grace. What is that going to look like? Well, I have all humility and gentleness and patience with each other, showing forbearance to one another in love. Being diligent to preserve the unity of of the Spirit, the unity that the Spirit has already established when he brings a person into Christ, therefore he's already joined to us as part of the forever, forever family, and therefore, as, as part of that unity the Spirit has made, we're to therefore celebrate the bond of peace which, peace, which is really to say we celebrate the love that Christ has for us. That is what it means to preserve the unity. And so because of the gospel, I'm just again reminding us what we already, many of us know, and we need to hear it again and again. Because of the gospel, because of our forever family, we work through our problems. Knowing that Jesus' commitment, he is continually praying for us. He died for us that we might live for him, that we might have resources to live for him in community. And therefore, Jesus is committed to our sanctification. No matter what, he's committed to making sure that we grow into maturity in Christ. And so therefore, that's encouraging to us and also challenging as we live out as brethren together in unity. Another term that describes the nature of unity in the New Testament is the word koinonia. Let's all say that together. It's a nice word, koinonia. Like a coin, you know, like many? Okay, let's say it again, koinonia. There you go. So you just learned Greek. Now you can say, I know Greek. No, you don't. I don't either. Uh, I used to know it, but uh, it's a shame how the brain just doesn't hold things on anymore. But koinonia is a term that means a number of different kinds of things about fellowship, about sharing. So here's the point number C. Fellowship of partners who celebrate the sharing of our lives. I'm not sure which point that is, but anyway, fellowship of partners who celebrate the sharing of our lives. The term koinonia was used in ancient uh, first century time to talk about maybe you shared a, an ownership of a business <clears throat> and so you shared in a maybe a piece of property that you co-own with someone else and so you had koinonia together Ricardo you own this property uh, something you share in common with someone else as Christians we are united in fellowship with God through Jesus Christ we read in first Corinthians 1 verse 9 that God is faithful through whom you were called into what? Into fellowship with Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a fellowship we have with him. And because we have fellowship with him, therefore we have a fellowship with each other based on that. A sharing together. 
And uh, this sharing oftentimes leads to practical sharing together. By this I mean, if you look at first, uh, let's say Acts 2.42, once the Holy Spirit came, then the evidence of this new community that's together, of this fellowship, is described this way. These early Christians were continually devoting themselves, Acts 2.42, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. That's the word koinonia. They're, they're devoting themselves to fellowship, koinonia, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Also, 1 Corinthians 10.16, very interesting passage. Paul, in talking about this passage about uh, the problems among Israelites and how they're to learn from some of those problems they had, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing, there's the word koinonia, sharing, a fellowship in the blood of Christ, is not the bread which we break a sharing, a fellowship, a koinonia in the body of Christ. You can't escape the fact that there's this fellowship that exists among us if we have fellowship with Jesus Christ in the gospel. So this kind of practical sharing is evidenced in the early church as they shared their resources with each other. In Acts chapter 5, they're selling things, saying, I don't really need all this, but I'm going to take my possessions and things that God's entrusted me, I'm going to sell that, and I'm going to share it among people as I see that they have other needs. In our church, we try to do that through the ministry of the Benevolent Fund. That's a ministry of koinonia. We have fellowship. We're sharing together in what God has blessed us with, with practical needs that somebody may have. Another aspect of trying to encourage koinonia or fellowship is growth groups, where we encourage the sharing of our lives in a smaller context, a smaller group setting. And this partnership provides us a setting where we're free to express our struggles, we're free to express our joys. And some people assume that fellowship is only going to take place, they think in their minds, only is going to dynamically be a significant expression of fellowship when I'm fellowshipping among people who are similar to me. That is, they need to be about the same age group, they need to be about the same number of years they've been a Christian, or because they have the same number of kids, or, or whatever. Or they're all married, and so I'm married, or I'm single, I want to be single. No, I would just again argue and, and suggest to you that there is such benefit to being in fellowship with people who do not fit your profile. It's amazing. Younger people, yes, younger people can and they do gain great wisdom from the experience of older people. And older people, I would say, and strongly argue, we gain, I'm putting myself in that category now, I am an older person now, we gain from our youthful partners in the gospel who have boundless energy and boundless passion, which some of us have lost years ago. Those are good things to see collectively interacting with each other, sharing together, having a fellowship. And as we share our lives in true koinonia, we will celebrate the fellowship that we have with Jesus Christ, which fosters a freedom and a greater sense of, of living, giving permission for the confessing of sins to each other. Because we're, we're, we're in this thing together. We're fellowshipping. And also to have welcoming open homes where we actually open the doors of our homes which represents an opening of our hearts to people and say here come and break bread and let's celebrate together let's talk about what's life going on with you and we also maintain vulnerable open hearts with each other that only happens among people who are in koinonia sharing their lives together 
not closing off people, not building walls, not sort of uh, leaving our hearts closed to different individuals. It's a sense of openness. It's a beautiful thing in any family or among any, any partners. All right, I've got to keep moving along here. Here's another, one other term here, the, the word body. There are images of unity in the New Testament, and one of them is the human body, where we find this functional unity among differing members. And so the point there under that one is the body which interdependently serves and ministers to each other. Now, I want to show you something here. Watch this. I'm going to demonstrate an incredible illustration of the human body. Everybody watching? Some of you just woke up. Okay. He actually moved off the pulpit. Look at that. Okay. Watch this. Did you see it? Let me do it again. Some of you are not fast now. I'll do it slow. Now, for that to happen, I don't mean to make light of this. This is an amazing thing. Think about it. My brain had to just now send signals to the muscles in my legs and in my feet, which then put them in motion, but that needed the help of, mus- of uh, oxygen and blood in the oxygen, had to be making sure that was plenty supplied to, for those parts of my body, which meant that my heart had to circulate that, all that oxygenated blood, which means it had to come from lungs that were functioning and getting that oxygen in exchange of carbon dioxide and oxygen in my lungs, and that had to help and be fixed by making sure that was cooperation among the passageway in my nostrils going down through my nose. All that stuff was working together. You didn't see it, did you? It's an incredible amount of coordination and assistance with each other in order to accomplish the one thing of the brain says, go up the stairs. It's an amazing image that is the New Testament picks up on, talking about the human bodies that exhibit superb interdependent cooperation among differing members of the body. As these different members of the body work together in biological unity, the members of Christ's body do what? We labor together to build each other up using our spiritual gifts. And so in the body of Christ, each person indeed is blessed to have a part to play. They have a ministry to perform. And so if you look at Ephesians 4, you'll turn there again, just keep your finger there. And John, we are going to get back to that. Ephesians 4, verses 15 and 16. Very interesting passage here, using the head analogy and the rest of the members of the body. Now, by the way, it's a typo in your bulletin. Uh, it's Ephesians 4, not Ephesians 5. So we want to correct that. Otherwise, you'll be looking at that verse saying, what in the world is he thinking here? Ephesians 4, 15 and 16, page 1392. It says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what, what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part. See that? Each individual part works together helping the body accomplish what it needs to do, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. And so the church, like ours, we need people with the gift of administration, people who can organize, people who can think, how do we get from here to here to here and 
all these different gifts and people to coordinate, whatever. We need people like that to organize. We need encouragers to come along and motivate, speak words of encouragement and appreciation, and to show uh, the kind of uh, rah-rah that sometimes we need to hear. There's others who are teachers, and they can clarify and instruct and try to make clear things that seem a little bit fuzzy, ask good questions to make us think even more clearly. There are people who have a special gift of evangelism. I'm not saying that all of us shouldn't be involved in evangelism, but there's some who are quite gifted at it to impart the the gift of the gospel to others. And there are those who have the gift of discernment to help us understand what is error and what's false teaching from that which is truth. We need all those different kinds of gifts. And the point is that diversity in the body of Christ among all these different gifts provides a wonderful network in which we find and we achieve God's work as each one participates, as each one cooperates. So there's not a sense in which it's just my turf, this is my realm, this is what I'm seeking to do. No, it's what we are seeking to do to accomplish what the head wants. That's the beautiful part of the body of Christ, who is unified under the headship of the body. All right, well, let me just bring this to a wrap us up there to an end. My point here, number three, is very short, so bear with me. The question then comes, why is unity so important? Why was it so desired by Jesus? Again, I would say verses 21 and 23 are really key here. Jesus says he prays that they, those who will believe because of the apostles' testimony, he prays they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us, that the world may believe that you did send me. Verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, that the world may know that you did send me and did did love them, even as you did love me. I believe that Jesus desires the local expression of his family, his partners, his body, to convey an important message about himself before the world. If you saw there in verse 21 and 23, Jesus wants his church members to demonstrate a love and devotion which displays a unity amidst diversity, that is, they're all different ones, but it's joined together, to help unbelievers see a small glimpse of what Jesus is really like. The passion that we have to be a unified church is not so that we can just have a a quiet, calm place to hang out in a crazy, chaotic, divisive world. It's because we desire to have a passion for the glory of Christ and that people might understand who Christ really is. And it's perceived and seen clearly in a church that is united. And therefore, that unbelievers see this small glimpse of what God's like. Our church was brought into being by the love of God. And when church members live out that love for God, the contours of God's love can be put on display for others to begin to understand a little bit of what that means. I draw your attention to a book that uh, we're going to be reading here among a number of us. Uh, in a book reading club here, Evangelism, How the Whole Church Speaks of Jesus by Max Stiles. He picks up on this verse in John 17. He says this. First he says, John 13, everyone will know we're disciples if we have love for one another, right? And then he says in John 17, that the world may believe that you have sent me. He says that we love, the love we have for one another in the church is a statement that we are truly converted. 
Where there's love, there's evidence of true conversion. And when we are unified in the church, we show to the world that Jesus is the Son of God. Love confirms our discipleship, and unity confirms Christ's deity. How do we show others that Jesus is the Son of God? By uniting with other believers. And therefore, it really is the strong sense that we are what? We're not just Christians doing the idea of following Jesus out there somewhere. We are united to the local church. We've identified ourselves as, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm going to live that out now among a body of Christ. And therefore, I'll show to the world that, that, God is, that Jesus is not just a mere teacher. He is the Son of God. He's the one sent from heaven. Put him on display in the local church, identifying yourself as a member in covenant, seeking to live in unity for Christ and his glory. I pray the Lord will do this, but that's not so much the big deal. It's Jesus who's praying that we will do this. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we thank you for the love that launched all of these things we've been talking about today. It is from your loving heart that you, in compassion, sent your son Jesus to rescue those who turned away from you and refused to live under your authority and who really began to make a mess of this world and create a mess in our relationships. But Lord, we thank you that there is hope through Christ. We thank you for the gospel, how wonderful it is to know that we can be forgiven, that we can be reconciled, that we can enjoy you because of Jesus and his righteousness, because of him and his payment for our sin. Lord, I pray for anyone who's here today, Lord, if they don't know what it is to have fellowship with Jesus Christ, do not have a fellowship based on Jesus' complete work on the cross and his resurrection on their behalf. They've never acknowledged their sin. They've never repented of their sin and turned away from it and asked Christ to save them, to rescue them. Lord, I pray that even today this would be their response to this message, that they would now enjoy the fellowship we can have with you through Christ. Lord, on the other hand, I just want to pray for the rest of us who do enjoy fellowship with you. Lord, may that fellowship be wonderful. May it be sweet. May it be enduring. May it be ongoing every day, throughout the day. We pray, Father, that our union with you through the gospel will be lived out in our church way, in our church family, in a way that's evident that, Jesus, you are the Son of God. I pray, Father, that you would encourage us in our church, knowing that you are interceding for us, knowing that our precious Savior never stops praying for his church. And for that, we are deeply and profoundly encouraged and grateful. It is through Jesus and how we thank you, Lord Jesus. It is through your name we pray. Amen.